Good afternoon, everybody. So good to see all of y'all. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Uh, after a one-week break last week, in which we celebrated our 10-year anniversary, we're back now to the fall series through Luke's parables that will carry us all the way up until Christmas. And though we took a bit of a break last week, and that we didn't look at a parable from Luke, uh, there's a sense in which what we did last week and what we'll do this afternoon are very much consistent with one another. We spent a lot of time last week looking back at what God has done in our church, how grateful we are at what he's built in the, in, in, in the use of his word to equip us, to encourage us, to stir faith in us, and in the use of one another, our relationships with each other, to, to point us back to Jesus over and over and to, to help our lives come to reflect more of his glory. We celebrated all of that, and then we looked ahead, trusting him to continue to do that same work in us week to week to week to keep on building what he's already started to build. And it, it's a little bit on that topic that, that, that I want us to focus today, at least in a way. I have many hopes for our church. I hope that we'll always love God's word. I hope that we'll be faithful in our evangelism. I hope that more and more with every passing year, more and more of us care deeply about doctrine about the truth that God has told us about himself and his ways in this world. I hope that we're a church that consistently invests in our children. I hope that we are a church that it's, where it's normal to help one another work hard in our jobs in Jesus' name. But, but friends, all of these hopes that I have, all of these, these good and precious traits, even if all of them were to characterize us 10 years from now, it won't be enough. It won't be enough to display his glory to our community. If underneath all these traits, underneath our knowledge and our action and, and even our evangelism, if underneath them all is not a posture toward our neighbors that looks like his toward us. In other words, all of this won't be enough if we aren't a people deeply, fundamentally, and obviously marked by compassion. The story we're going to look at this, this afternoon helps us to see the compassion that should mark us and to pursue it. You may remember uh, from a couple of weeks ago when we were first setting up this series in the parables uh, that, that one important way to think about the parables and the kind of work they do for Jesus and his teaching is to give us a picture of what his kingdom is like because it's often misunderstood and to give us a picture of what those who are in his kingdom will look like because that's often misunderstood too. You can think about the parables, in other words, as a kind of inspired stereotyping, a stereotyping that's good and appropriate and not destructive. Behind these parables is a profile, in other words, of somebody who belongs to the kingdom. And Jesus had to correct all sorts of mistaken assumptions about who the insiders were and who the outsiders were, about how you get into this kingdom and how you can tell who belongs to it. The parables are his way of cutting underneath all the assumptions we bring to the table and to get right to the heart of it. How can you tell who's with Jesus? Those who belong to his kingdom show compassion. That's how you can tell. Those who belong with Jesus see other people in need and move toward them. In their hearts first. And then in their actions. This message is going to come through loud and clear in what Jesus says to us in Luke 10. Through a parable that's maybe the most familiar of all. The parable of the Good Samaritan. 
What I want for us to do this afternoon is to walk through this parable bit by bit to see what compassion looks like, to see where compassion comes from, and to see how we, both as individuals but also as a congregation, can embrace compassion. What compassion looks like, where compassion comes from, and how we can embrace compassion. I want to begin by reading the text for us this afternoon. I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I pick up in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and then read all the way through verse 37. This, friends, is God's word to us. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, meaning Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell in among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. This parable shows us what compassion looks like. That's its purpose. You may recall from that overview sermon I mentioned a minute ago that one of the keys to understanding the point of these parables is to pay attention to the main characters. Who are they? What are they doing? What are they saying? And especially important is, what's the difference between them? As you compare the characters in a parable, how are they different from one another? Often we're going to see contrasts that show us what his kingdom is like. And often we'll see it saying yes to this over here and and no to that over there. So let's break down these characters. And I think you'll see what I've been talking about. The first several characters in this parable are notable, I think, for what isn't said about them as much as for what is said. The first character we meet is a man, just called a, a certain man, a man. He was just a man who, who may as well have been any man or every man, just a guy. He's traveling down the road to Jericho when he's beaten, robbed, and left for dead. Now he's helpless. Now he's alone, and that's all we know about him. No other details. The next two characters overlap with one another. They're really two versions of the same thing. We meet two religious leaders. 
These two are going to stand for what not to be and to do. These are the dark side of the contrast that's going to bring out compassion in this story. One is a priest. The other is a Levite, which is something like a priest's assistant. These are the would-be doers and lovers of the law. These guys represent the respectable class in Jewish society. And to Jesus' audience, these are the guys you'd want to identify with and to be like. But look at how these guys respond. They see the man, all right. His needs are not lost on them. This is verses 31 and 32. But one after another, they see him and they pass by him on the other side. They see need and they move away. We're told nothing about why these religious leaders didn't stop to help. No more than we were told about who this guy is that needed help in the first place. It matters that we're not told. Maybe they had their reasons. Maybe they had somewhere else important to be. Maybe they're worried that the robbers still might be around and that they might get attacked themselves if they hung around too long. Maybe they figured this guy should have known better than to be out on a dangerous road all by himself at this time of day. Maybe they figure that whatever the cause is involved, the bottom line is it wasn't their fault. They didn't do this to this guy. So why should they get involved? They have other things that are important that are on their plate. See, friends, we tend to often zero in on circumstances, on intent. Jesus doesn't care. What matters to Jesus is that this guy was in need, just a guy in need, and that they didn't help him. What isn't said matters as much as what is. Now we're ready for the Samaritan. The final of the characters in this story. And with the Samaritan's arrival in verse 33, this story slows to a crawl, almost giving us a kind of iPhone slow-mo camera version of what happens next. It's, it's meant to make sure that we catch every detail, even the sheer word count of this story, how it breaks down, draws our attention like a flashing light to this man and what he does next. So if you think about these, these other religious leaders that we've just considered, think about them as this very dark canvas on which a portrait is about to be painted. The details in this part where the Samaritan enters the scene, they're the bright, brilliant colors that just pow, pop off against that dark background. And the brilliant colors in this portrait are the colors of compassion. It's a portrait that's meant to shock us, both for its breadth, who this compassion involves, and for its depth, how far this compassion goes. Consider its breadth. Friends, it matters that this guy is a Samaritan. It's a little hard for us to get a hold of because because we already know he's the good guy. Most of us know this story and have known it for a long time. And we know that the Samaritan is the good Samaritan, right? So we have wonderful positive associations with him. We also, if, we, if you have much exposure at all to Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, know that typically the religious leaders are the bad guys. So we're predisposed not to identify with them. It would have been just the opposite for Jesus' audience. Jesus' audience would have been shocked at the way he's portrayed these religious leaders and then would have been shocked that the Samaritan, when he comes on the scene, well, he treats this man differently. Assuming that this wounded man was Jewish, the kind of default assumption for this context, this Samaritan man would have had really good reason to keep on moving. The Jews and the Samaritans by this point were natural enemies, not, not like warring enemies. They didn't have 
armies that were going to battle against each other, but there was a there was by this point centuries of resentment of just bad blood between the two groups and and serious religious disagreements on top of all of that. So if anything, what Jesus audience would have been expecting when the Samaritan comes up on a presumably Jewish man on the side of the road, if anything what they're expecting is for him to take maybe some pleasure in what's happened to this guy. The way so many of us rejoiced last night in the downfall of the once mighty LSU Tigers. You see that and, and it, it pleases you because you have history with these people. But look at what happens. The setup is exactly the same as with the other two guys. We're told that the Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was, just like the other two. He came. Then we're told that he saw him, just like the other two, same setup. But where the other two guys both were told, pass by onto the other side. The Samaritan, when he came and when he saw, well, he had compassion. Verse 33, there's the key. This is the key. They were detached. They said implicitly, not it. They had other things to do. They had problems of their own. He, he had compassion. To him, it doesn't matter who this man is. He doesn't ask that question. It just matters that he's dying. Nor does he care how the man got there. He doesn't try to evaluate whether or not this guy got what he deserved. What matters is what he needs now. He needs help. And it doesn't matter to him what it's going to cost him. What matters is that he's able to help. And so he does. That's the breadth of compassion. Now look at the depth. Boy, does he ever help. Verses 34 and 35, again, slow motion, give us so much detail compared to what has been normal for this story up until now. It's a frame-by-frame view into what true compassion looks like. Friends, this right here, these verses, this is what Jesus wants us to notice. This is what matters right here. He shares his time with the man first. He goes to him. He, 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 he stops what he was doing to give him attention. He shares his strength, doing the work to bind up the wounded and taking care of him once they reach this inn. He shares his resources. It's his oil and wine poured on these wounds for, to soothe them. Surely he had other purposes in mind for those resources. Those were precious. He gave them up without thinking. It's his money that will pay for ongoing care. It's his animal that gets the man to the inn in the first place. He walked so this man could ride. This Samaritan, bound by nothing but a common humanity, sees this man in need and makes his needs his own. That's compassion. Friends, if you, if you remember the context, what we just read, you can see how powerful and subversive this story from Jesus really is. Who will inherit eternal life? Who's in this kingdom? That was the question at the top. How can you tell? Well, not by pedigree. Those two religious leaders had that. Not by racial purity. Those two religious leaders had that in their own minds. Being a priest is no advantage. Being a Samaritan is no barrier. The mark of this kingdom, friends, is compassion. That's how you tell. So where does this compassion come from? 
The portrait of compassion is easy to love. I've never heard of any anti-Good Samaritan sentiment out there. Some sort of movement against compassion like this. Never have I heard of such a thing. There's all sorts of good vibes towards this model, even amongst those who are not Christians. It's a famous story and celebrated all over. But if we stay at that level, at the kind of sentimental yes to this picture that we've just seen, we're going to have some serious problems. We could miss the deeper work that the story is doing. And, and, and missing the deeper work about what the story is doing, we could miss the kind of compassion that tells the truth about Jesus. So what we need to look at carefully is, is where this compassion comes from, and we'll never have a chance at showing it to others. Not really. And I'll say more about why. Where compassion comes from is key, and it's going to come out in another contrast in this story, a contrast between what we see in the lawyer whose question gives rise to the story and what we see in Jesus whose work is behind the story and is the subject of all of the Bible. We're going to see a contrast between the lawyer who raises the question and between Jesus who answers it. Look at the lawyer first. This parable is told to correct his misunderstandings. It's meant to humble him. It's meant to put him in his place and show him, that other, show him and others who are, who are like him, others who are around him, that the kingdom of God is not what they thought it was. Jesus is exposing something in his heart through this story. A heart that can't produce compassion of this depth and breadth. A heart that, in fact, kills compassion and replaces it with a counterfeit lookalike. That's what I want you to see from this lawyer. He's got something in his heart that can't produce compassion of this depth and breadth and, in fact, kills it and replaces it with a counterfeit lookalike. Back up with me to the question asked by the lawyer. What shall I do, he asks, to inherit eternal life? Friends, there's nothing wrong with that question. That is the question. That's a question I hope you're asking today. There is no more important question than this one. The problem isn't the question. The problem is the heart from which this man asks the question. Did you notice that he asks this question to put him, meaning Jesus, to the test. Verse 25. In other words, he knows exactly what to do to inherit eternal life. He believes he's already doing it. He's not actually looking for new insight here. He just wants to know if Jesus sees that his answer is the right one. He's testing Jesus. Does he get it? Does he get what I know? When Jesus asks him what he thinks summarizes the whole law, or, or summarizes what it takes to get into to inherit eternal life, he summarizes the whole law at that point. Nothing wrong with the answer, actually. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. This law is good. And underneath all of its commands is a posture of trust, of faith in God. That is, that is the essence of kingdom life. A, a love for him that touches every part of who you are and controls everything that you do, including your love for your neighbor. It's all in on him. You answered correctly, Jesus tells him. Still, this man seems to believe that he's good. To believe that the law is on his side. But Jesus, in a subtle but powerful way, by throwing his own words back into his face, is raising for him, without even using words, 
a question, the weight of which this man clearly feels. Your whole heart, all your strength. You've loved your neighbor as yourself, really? You know how you love yourself. How much relentless attention you pay to your every need, day in and day out. You've loved your neighbor like that? That's the underlying force of Jesus' simple response to the man, and he gets the point, and you can tell that from verse 29. We're told that he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Friends, he's not asking this question so he can add to his prayer list. He's not trying to figure out whose needs he needs to check in on for the day. There's a question under his question that shows what's in his heart, that his heart is bent on self-justification. The question under the question is not, how many people out there can I love? Just, just tell me where to go. I'm ready. The question is, who do I have to love? What's required of me? How much is enough? And haven't I done enough already? He desires to justify himself. Really, as one's put it, what he wants is a loophole. He wants maximum righteousness at minimum cost. He believes that he loves and obeys the law, but he doesn't. Not really. He doesn't love it. He's trying to chop it down to size. He wants to clear it as a set of responsibilities and move on to the rest of his life on his terms. And that means he doesn't really love God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. And he doesn't really love his neighbor either. He sees his neighbor as a means to his ends. His neighbor and whatever he must do towards his neighbor is his platform on which he performs. His neighbor is how he justifies himself. And friends, when other people are the platform for your performance you are going to need to limit who counts as your neighbor. This posture towards others will never produce compassion. And since it's our default mode to justify ourselves at every turn, we're going to need a new kind of supply chain. Where do we get the compassion we need to love with the depth and breadth that this Samaritan has modeled for us? Only one place. This story is mostly a negative contrast. It doesn't supply the gospel to us. But this story falls in the midst of a, of a gospel that does, of an overarching story told by Luke that makes it very clear where this sort of compassion comes from. Friends, I wonder if, if you were here a month ago when we first began this series, if you remember the parable we, we considered from Luke chapter 7. It was in this parable that, that Jesus discusses two different people, one a, a, a would-be lawkeeper, the other a notorious sinner, both, both being forgiven for different debts. And it's the one who was, who was forgiven for a debt that she knew she could never repay, that, that loved Jesus. Her heart was captured by his forgiveness of her. It led to a different posture in life because she knew where she'd come from. She experienced his compassion, and then she was full of it from that point. The one who's forgiven much loves much. See, this lawyer, he doesn't see his need for compassion. In his mind, he was good to go. When that's how you see yourself, you won't see much in Jesus. 
But if you're what the Bible calls poor in spirit, if in other words, friends, you know from just from bitter experience that you're not okay on your own, if you know that spiritually you're what Paul calls dead in sin, that, that you're not going to be able to reverse what you've done or change who you are. Let me say this another way. If you know yourself spiritually to be in the position of this wounded and beaten and stripped down and helpless half-dead man, then you're ready to receive the compassion of Jesus. And you're ready to see that this Samaritan, for all his beauty, is but a pale reflection of Jesus' love for sinners. This Samaritan happens upon a man who was helpless and a clear victim, a man with whom he had no personal history. Christ came to us while we were his enemies. Our sin is personal to him, and yet our sin against him doesn't drive him away from us. Instead, it draws him into us. We think of the passage Bill read earlier in our gospel assurance during our service from Titus 2, or rather Titus chapter 3. He says, we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient and led astray and slaves to passions and pleasures and passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's us before. That's us in the ditch. That's us spiritually bankrupt and unable to change the truth about ourselves. But, verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Or think about Paul's, Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where here, here Paul is actually trying to encourage these Christians to be generous and, and, and sensitive to the needs of the poor in another part of, of their world, another part of the, of, of the, uh, the ancient Roman Empire where, where the Christian gospel had, had passed on, new churches had been formed, and now they're sharing what they have with one another to make sure that everyone is covered. Paul, writing to the Christians in Corinth to encourage them to share with those who are in need elsewhere, says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. You see the connection? When we look to Christ as those who need compassion, when we receive compassion from this Savior, what happens is that we start getting conformed to the image of this compassionate Savior. His compassion starts to work itself out in us and pass itself on through us. We put on Christ in our hearts. And the fruit of it the mark of it is a compassion like his. How might you tell if your compassion comes from an experience of Jesus rather than the counterfeit version that this lawyer had put on? I wonder, friend, are you more excited by a conversation about doing good to your neighbors than a conversation about the neighbor that Jesus has been to you? I wonder if talk of Jesus ever feels to you like a buzzkill or distraction from what matters. From the real nitty-gritty work of serving. If that's your heart's response to Jesus, then the compassion that you're, that's flowing through you is probably not flowing from Him. 
And if that's the case, your compassion is likely to have severe limits in who it stretches out to. For example, here's another question for you. How can you know if your compassion flows from you and your experience of Jesus rather than as a put-on version, something more like what this lawyer had? Are you compassionate toward everyone? Even those who don't see your agenda as you do. Even those who seem blind to what matters to you. Let's say even those who, who, who interact with the needs of others differently than you do. Is your compassion selective? If so, it, it does not reflect the beauty of Jesus. It does not tell the truth about him or bring to him the glory that is our responsibility to, 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 to bring to him. The compassion on display in this story comes only through an experience of Jesus' compassion. What I want to do now with the few minutes we have left is talk about how we can embrace compassion. We've seen what it looks like. Good Samaritan has helped us with that. We've seen where it comes from. We've got to be real particular about where, where we look for the inspiration to serve others. Now let's talk about practically how can we embrace the compassion that's been shown to us. With this story, friends, Jesus has seen through the pretense of the lawyer's question and raised instead the only question that really matters. His question had been, who is my neighbor? Underneath that question was, who do I have to love in order to justify myself? By the end of the story, Jesus has raised another question. Not who is my neighbor, but what kind of neighbor am I? Here's how another person put it. He's changed the question from what status of people are worthy of my love to how can I become the kind of person whose compassion disregards status? And like all the parables, the ones we've seen and the ones we've still to consider, this parable is here to raise to us a mirror. This parable asks us to consider where we see ourselves in this story. And it demands that we respond to it. That's why Jesus' concluding words are what they are. You, go and do likewise. How can we? I want to leave you with two questions. I'm going to provide some context for each one of them, but I mean to leave you with them. For you to consider them and for you to take them to your friends and to talk about them together. If this story shows us the mark of compassion that distinguishes those who are with Jesus, those who belong to his kingdom, then as we approach our neighbors out there, two questions matter. What does my neighbor need? How can I help? What does my neighbor need? How can I help? What does my neighbor need? That's the question, friends. Not who must I love, but who is in need? Who's hurting? Who's trapped or mistreated? Who's undervalued? 
Where are God's precious image bearers vulnerable? I want to take a minute here and talk about racial disparities. Not just in our country, but specifically here in our city. You probably don't need me to tell you that these disparities exist. That they exist across all sorts of crucial metrics like income, educational opportunities, educational attainment, housing access, health care, incarceration, the list goes on. The disparities are there and honestly, they've persisted from one generation to another and to my knowledge, show little sign of going away. As far as I know, there isn't a dispute out there about these numbers, not broadly considered. The disparities are there. The dispute comes with where these problems came from and who's responsible to solve them and what's the best way to solve them from this point. And I don't mean to minimize questions like those. I think they do matter. Nor do I mean to minimize how complex the answers must be. These issues are complicated. But for now, for this one sermon and these six minutes, on this one text and its scope of relevance, I want to suggest to you that these questions actually at one level don't matter. They just don't matter. What matters is that our neighbors are suffering and Christians are marked by compassion. It's that compassion, the drive to suffer with because we have been suffered with that pushes us toward these issues and then controls how we take them up. Look, I, of course, as Christians, our answers to the nitty-gritty questions are not always going to be the same. The issues are complicated. It would shock me if we had all the same answers to everything that matters. That's okay. What we can't do as Christians is pass by on the other side. That we can't do. We have to be at least united in compassion in broken hearts over the pain of our neighbors and a resolve to do what we can do about it. Friends, that's going to mean that we're just going to have to say no to certain excuses we might be likely to draw from. Excuses that will sound way too much like the excuses of this lawyer to suit us. We might say, I know I'm called to love my neighbor. I get that. But the problems affecting these African-American communities in our city... Well, they're not my fault. I, I didn't do anything to contribute to this problem. And friends, we can set aside for the moment that argument. I mean, it's an important one to take up. I'm not going to touch that. Let's just say you were right about that, if that's what you're thinking. Who cares? Was it the Samaritan's fault that this man was beaten and robbed and left for dead when he came up upon him? No. It doesn't matter. He had compassion. Some might say, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but, but these problems are their fault. Once again, doesn't that sound way too much like, who is my neighbor anyway? How much do I have to love? Haven't I done enough? At the most important level, that question doesn't matter either. We know nothing about this robbed man, this beaten man. The Samaritan doesn't ask whether he should have been there if he was hanging out with the wrong people or whatever. It just doesn't come into it. This guy is in need. That's enough. What are the needs of my neighbors? That's the question that matters for Christians. And friends, there are wonderfully productive conversations to be had amongst us 
in the context of our love for one another, of our shared experience of Jesus' compassion to us, of our shared excitement about reminding each other of who he is, that is a tone-setting relationship right there. If we can't have productive and action-stirring conversations on these difficult, divisive issues, given all that we share, nobody can. Let's risk it. The first question that matters is not, who is my neighbor? But what does my neighbor need? And the second question then is, how can I help? That's it. Thanks be to God, he hasn't made any one of us responsible for saving the world. That's his job. Of course, there will be more needs out there than any of us will ever be able to get to. That actually should set us free, not shut us down. We're set free to look for what we can do and driven by compassion to do it. And if our compassion is modeled on this Samaritan's compassion, even more, friend, if our, if our compassion is modeled on Jesus' compassion for us, it's going to have to extend beyond having the right thoughts about an issue, beyond Instagram and beyond T-shirts. It, it, we're going to have to be careful that we screen ourselves for a compassion that's just one more way of justifying ourselves, using the needs of others as our platform for performance. Consider again the Samaritan. This guy isn't building a brand. No one sees what he does. He's got dirt and blood on his hands. He has less money in his pocket. He's more tired at the end of the journey because he walked instead of rode. His life, in other words, is affected by the compassion that he's shown to this man. Ours should be too. How can we help? What can we leverage? We ought to think carefully about our influence, not just our resources. I read, I read in a book a while back, uh, a guy used a really helpful illustration uh, based on the Good Samaritan story. If, if this Good Samaritan, let's say, hypothetically, found that every time he walked down this road to Jericho, he kept walking up on beaten, stripped, robbed, half-dead men, then at, at some point he might shift from just taking care of that guy into maybe trying to improve road conditions or beef up security in that spot or address some of, the, some of the problems that were bigger than each individual occurrence because they aren't coincidences. There's, a, there's something bigger broken here. Friends, we have influence beyond just our own pocketbooks, don't we? Maybe we ought to influence the conditions on the road. Now, my point here is not to tell you what issues to vote on, just to tell you what drives Christians into the public square. Christians go into the public square driven by compassion. There is no compassionate partisan platform out there. You are going to have to make compromises. That's why this is not a political speech right here. I don't know what you should do with your vote. But wherever we have influence, we ought to be driven by compassion for vulnerable human lives at every stage. And we ought to know, friends, that in this community, in our church, we won't see solutions the same way. We won't cast the same votes. But we ought to be able to trust one another to be driven by compassion in, in what we do. To start with that. To give each other the grace, the benefit of the doubt that that's where we're coming from. And then to have helpful, productive, non-threatening conversations with each other about what it looks like to use your influence driven by compassion 
in this time and in this place. We see needs of our neighbors from the same heart. Because that's how, that's how our belonging to Jesus will show up to the world around us. Let's pray now. Given the stakes, given whose name is implicated in our relationships towards one another and to our neighbors, given these stakes, let's pray for his help. Would you join me? Father, I pray that, that you, by the power of your word, would encourage us. Protect us from shame and guilt, from self-righteousness and all the other motives the evil one uses to just bog us down and keep us from working together to love our neighbors. And instead, we pray for a vivid picture of Jesus crucified and risen, of Jesus praying that his people would be one, and of Jesus saying to us that all will know we're his disciples by the quality of our love. And we pray that whatever else our next 10 years as a congregation does or does not include, we would be a people marked by compassion. For your name's sake and not ours. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.